Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mindscape Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Carroll. Those of you who have read my book, The Big Picture, will remember that I talk a lot about consciousness, not so much how consciousness works, but the fact that it doesn't need any mystical spooky stuff to go ahead and eventually explain it. We don't understand the explanation yet, but we have every reason to think that we'll get there in perfectly physical, natural terms. So one of the things you have to establish, if that's an argument you're going to make, even though we don't yet have the explanation, is that it's possible to imagine a purely naturalistic explanation. And part of that is understanding how consciousness could have arisen. And of course, consciousness is an incredibly complicated, multifaceted thing, so it's not one simple answer. There are stages along the way. So I talked in the big picture about an example given by today's guest, Malcolm McIver, who is a professor at Northwestern University, about one of the steps that conscious creatures might have gone on, and in particular, when fish climbed onto land. Now, obviously, there's a lot of physiological changes when you go from being an aquatic animal to a land-based animal. But McIver claims that there's also intellectual changes. There's changes in how you think. And it's based on the idea that how we think is strongly influenced by how we sense, which is in turn related, if you want, to the podcast I did with Lisa Azizadeh on embodied cognition, where we talked about how, how we think is influenced by our bodies in general. Here on today's podcast, we're going to be thinking about how thinking is influenced by how we sense the world. So whether it's through our eyes or our ears, or in the case of certain fish, they have electrical impulses that give them a handle on the world around them. So McIver argues that the transition of climbing onto land gave not only a different way of thinking about the world and looking at the world, but a different mode of imagination. So not only could you see much further once you've climbed onto land, but that fact about your sensorium led directly to an evolutionary change in how you could compete for food and other resources. Namely, you could plan ahead. Suddenly there is an evolutionary pressure to develop a capacity for imagination, which is crucial on the road to consciousness. So in today's podcast, we dive into this idea. We talk about how we sense in general, how we think, and then the implications of this understanding for how we should think how we can better improve our actual cognitive capacities, both as individuals and as a species, as societies, how we can plan for the future. We are stuck with the brains that evolution gave us. Can we do better than that? So it's a wonderful conversation mixing ideas from science and philosophy with real implications for how we live in the world. Let me also mention, which I like to do occasionally, that you know there's a webpage for the Mindscape podcast. I have a feeling that a lot of listeners never go to the webpage. That's perfectly fine. But if you do, you'll find not only show notes and links to important things, but entire transcripts of the episodes. Those transcripts are, of course, paid for by our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Also on the webpage, you can find links to become a supporter yourself. Throw some cash at the Mindscape podcast. Uh, so the webpage is preposterousuniverse.com, which is my website in general, slash podcast. We'd love to see you there. There's also little discussions. You can leave comments on all the episodes. And with that, let's go. We are all driven by searching for something better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, but match with Indeed. 
If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Listeners of Mindscape will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Mindscape. Just go to Indeed.com slash Mindscape right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Mindscape. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Malcolm MacGyver, welcome to the Mindscape Podcast. Great to be here. So we have a lot of ground to cover from, you know, fish swimming around uh, to planning for the future of humanity. And <laughs> But you're a somewhat complicated guy and you're a, a wonderful role model for a successful interdisciplinary career, being as you are a professor in engineering departments and yet working on all sorts of things. So maybe in, in contrast with some other people we might have on the show, why don't we talk a little bit about how you got here? Like, what was your academic path that led you to where you are now? Oh, okay. Uh, it's a very tortured path. I guess I began, um, first of all, I uh, didn't go to formal school, was sort of self-taught, uh, eventually got myself into community college in Canada and used that to get into university. And there, essentially, I was curious about everything, and I immediately figured out if I did a philosophy degree, I could sort of get to do everything. It's like everything, yeah. Yeah, and but then uh, two years into my degree, I started getting quite worried that I might not be able to find a job. So I added a major <laughs> in computer science oh, to very my smart degree. Both counts. Good. And something very interesting happened. I started taking classes in philosophy and computer science, which were talking about the same things, like Turing machines and philosophy of mind and the nature of computation. And that got me very excited because suddenly the thing that I thought I was doing for, you know, a bread a meal ticket was actually intellectually also satisfying for me. And so that sort of led to this whole uh, line in, in CogSci and AI that I pursued for a while. Uh, I started a, a two-year, I did a master's in philosophy of science, did a two-year stint of a four-year program, PhD program in CogSci and philosophy of mind at Indiana University, which is actually where I was classmates with Dave Chalmers and Anthony Chimero and some other people who have gone on to do really well. Um, uh, but two years into that, I decided I was getting a f kind of frustrated just uh, thinking about the nature of the mind and thinking about the nature of computation, wanting to do something uh, with my hands, as it were, and decided to reapply to grad school and get into neuroscience. And that's eventually led to this program at uh, Urbana, um, University of Illinois in Urbana, where I did essentially neurethology, but with a strong computational bent. It you was, have to tell me what neurethology is. Okay, so it's the, <laughs> it's the study of the uh, neural basis of natural behaviors as a very okay. long and ancient, uh, well, maybe not ancient tradition, but old tradition, uh, out of essentially the marriage of ethology and neurophysiology. I don't even know what ethology is. Oh, the study of animal behavior. Tinbergen, animal behavior. looking okay. at birds rolling eggs, uh, Conrad Lorenz. These are 
famous ethologists. I know those names, but I didn't know the... I didn't know the whole Greek word. E- yeah, ethology. yeah. So, e, so just the letter E, not A E or anything crazy like that. Uh, ethology, yeah, just just right. ethology. So those two fields got together in in neuroethology, and the pursuit of neuroethology is one of looking at uh, you know things like uh, predator prey behaviors, any kind of behavior you'd see in in the natural world. Uh, so rather than bringing an animal into the lab and do what is uh, effective for creating (laughs) uh, scientific measurements, uh, repeatability, you you take what you get in nature or you try to recreate it in the lab. And so that's, uh, there's a whole tradition there. And and that's what I pursued, except it was a lab uh, run by a former high energy physicist uh, who uh, was at Caltech, actually did a lot of work in quarks. Mark Nelson is his so name. So many people are former high-energy physicists. <laughs> yeah. It's hilarious. So uh, as a result, it was a really interesting mix of both you know, animal behavior and computational modeling and really highly quantitative neurophysiology. So it was a really great training for me. Okay. And none of this is engineering. None of this is engineering. So where engineering came in is that near the last few years of my PhD, I was getting more into devising. Actually, we devised one of the very first, perhaps the first robot that used the same principles as weak electric fish to um, sense objects. Weak so, electric fish are an actual kind of fish. Yeah, actual kind of fish. Not They don't get plugged in. <laughs> they, they, are, they are real animals that um, essentially emit a small electric field and detect objects, sort of like a bat uses sonar to detect objects. So uh, that's what my PhD was on, was on characterizing their sensory system and modeling natural behavior, prey capture behavior in electric fish as they hunted their favorite prey, which happened in this particular species to be water fleas. Um, And so, uh, but near the end of my PhD, I got into building robots that duplicated some aspect of their capability. And in, in this particular case, it was how they use electric fields to detect objects the kind and of the identify deep, objects. The underlying theme here is trying to figure out how thinking or cognition relates to the body and the biology. Well, is so there there <laughs> well the 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 theme of I guess neuroethology is the most effective angle into understanding neural circuitry which is a lot more conserved across animals than we previously understood. But so you can study a fish, you can study even insects and get a lot of insight into neural organization in general. Uh, So the idea is to use behaviors which we're highly selected for as levers into the circuitry that supports those behaviors. Okay. And so that's that's really what electric fish as as a field is sort of um, oriented around. And the, the great thing about electric fish, which is why um, my advisor and many other people with quantitative or physics or electrical engineering backgrounds have gotten into them, is that whereas with most sensory systems, for example, for a olfaction, it'd be very hard to give a step impulse. So you, you can't really go from no odor to full odor to no right. odor. There's just all this complex mixing going on. With electric fields, when you're when you're working on electric fish, it's trivial to take their field, add a sinusoidal modulation or a square wave modulation, 
and then look at what their brain is doing as a result. So you can apply all of these techniques from electrical engineering and systems analysis theory to electric fish with very little how big, So these are real fish. How, how big is an electric fish? The ones that are typically studied in the lab, the apternotids are uh, 15 to 30 centimeters long. Okay. And do you, is there a, you know, uh, vibrant black market in electric fish? Do you buy them <laughs> at the fish market? Well, what's funny is that they're, they're actually popular in the tropical fish market. Oh. And a lot of people get them not even knowing that they are electric, electric fish. <laughs> they, they, they have a bizarre body form because they don't, most fish swim by flapping their tails. These guys have undulating membranes at the bottom of their bodies. We call it the ventral fin. Uh, and they undulate that sort of like a, a curtain uh, to move forward and backward and Frequently, you can't tell what direction they're swimming in. They swim equally agilely in both directions. But it's not an electric eel. That's something different. No, electric eels are related. They're actually in in a in a um, uh, close phylogenetic relationship to the ones I'm telling you about. But they have evolved a much stronger electric organ, which can put out 600 volts at an amp to stun their prey, and then they can have a you know a leisurely time going around nibbling up the things that are stunned. So the eels using electricity as a weapon. As a weapon. Fish they also have, sense yeah, weapon. and they also have the, the low voltage type to do sensing with. Okay. Uh, but the weekly electric fish only have the low voltage. So you get these electric fish, you bring yeah. them to your lab, yep. and you put them in a tank, and you yep. zap them and see what yep. happens? Yeah. You, uh, depending on the experiment, I did a lot of behavior with them. We also did uh, primary afferent neurophysiology where you're actually modulating their electric field. You take their field, you you add some sort of change to it that simulates them swimming by a rock or a plant, and you feed that back into the tank. Okay. And so, so you're taking them. It's a brain in a vat. It's a yeah, fish brain, in a vat. It, it totally is, which is, it's really remarkable. You can do virtual <laughs> reality with very little difficulty with an electric fish because they, they are sensing electric signals, which you can modulate with perfect control all over the body. With and is that their primary input or they also have sight and taste? They have, they have eyes. Uh, they're often blurry and cataract by the time we get them. Uh, they don't seem to use them very much. The reports are, I mean, the, 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 the rivers that they hunt in are turbid. So even in the daytime, they, you can't see more than a few centimeters right. through them. So, uh, so it looks like they're mostly used for, is it safe to come out yet? Is it dim enough to come out and hunt at night? They hunt at night. Or is it time to go hide in the weeds? Right, because their their prey are just little bugs. Exactly. And they yeah. want to stay away from Although them there's or... a whole buzzing electric civilization of like 200 species, and many what? of them will hunt No one told other... me this. <laughs> they will hunt other electric fish. In fact, many of the fish we, we get in the lab have like several inches of their tail missing uh, because they've been nipped and they have uh, their tail is where their electric field is strongest. So it's like a, it's almost like a lure right. for, and they happen to have evolved a way to regenerate their spinal cord in that area, which has been a, a subject of much interest because vertebrates regeneration sure. of spinal cord is obviously an important ability. But there's an electric arms race among several different species. <laughs> yes, yes, it totally is an arm ra arms race with many underwater, different almost underwater. Yeah. Yes, uh, they the whole uh, pulses went from uh, uniphasic to biphasic. To, uh, you know, all these different modes of, of signaling to uh, for sexual speciation, and it's an amazing story. Do yeah. we know how recently this developed in evolutionary? Time I think scale? it was, uh, if memory serves, it was around a hundred million years ago that the that the, they branched off of the non-electric uh, 
Asya Glasamoris, I think it was, is uh, the. I should know this better. I mean, we don't now care. We're not going to judge you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, how did you hornswoggle Northwestern University into thinking that this was engineering somehow? Well, so I came to actually here at Caltech, where we're recording, and uh, worked with Joel Burdick, who's a who's a great roboticist here, and uh, we did really fun work. Um, now on uh, making a robotic replica of the locomotion system, which turns out to have all kinds of fascinating properties. The locomotion system of the fish. Of the fish. So this ribbon fin locomotion system, which gives them bidirectional motion, forward-backward motion with amazing agility. And uh, so we built uh, a robot here, uh, several robots here, that uh, replicated uh, parts of, well, the, the entire ribbon fin, essentially. And we, we had a scale model. I remember this the first one we did was with wheels and servo motors. And, uh, and the, the, the last one we did was quite long. It was about a meter long. We had it in a flow tank in the, the basement of the mechanical engineering uh, uh, building and uh, did a variety of, of fluid studies of it. And uh. What if in 2024 you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what's happening. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Babbel is the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. What I like about Babbel is its practicality. It's about talking to real people, ordering food, asking directions. You will put it to use. And here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Mindscape. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash Mindscape. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Mindscape. Rules and restrictions may apply. Is it, I mean, it, it seems that having electric fields as your primary sense organ is a weird thing in the yes. animal kingdom. Yes. And also having this locomotion is a weird thing amongst yes. underwater dwelling things. Is there a relationship yes. between there these two weird things? There is a very tight relationship. <laughs> and so the way it goes is um, these, these are animals which will, typically when they're hunting, you'll see them hunt backwards, you'll see them hunt forwards. There's a great advantage to hunting backwards, to moving backwards while while hunting, in that by the time the prey or, or object of interest has gotten to their mouth, they've scanned it with their electrosensory system. Ah. Uh, so, so because it's a really near field sense, you kind of need to drag it across the receptors of the body before you can identify it. So if, there's, if they're swimming backwards, that's really easy. You know, they've scanned it by the time it gets to their head. If they're swimming forwards, what they do is they... They do this um, sort of, they'll, they'll rotate or something to get closer as mm -hmm. they're swimming forward. Then they'll do a rapid corkscrew back, sort of back to get to get the object if it's something that they want to eat. So the relationship is that this electric sense is very useful, but it's short range. It's short range. And if they were to try to, if they only had a big tail fin and they had to go forward and circle forward, around, really, yeah. they would have lost the prey. Because they can, so I spent much of my PhD quantifying exactly how far they could sense the their their objects of interest out to, and for a you know fifteen centimeter fish, it's something on the order of three and a half centimeters. 
for a millimeter size prey. You know, so they're hunting okay. really th- these particular species that we're talking about, which is after notice albifrons are hunting really or the black ghost much much sexier name, black ghost, <laughs> knife fish, uh, uh, hunt these millimeter-sized water fleas. And so they can only sense those three and a half centimeters or so away. And so if they were to swim forward and circle back, they would have totally too lost. Yeah. Yeah. Came over. Yeah. Now, isn't this obvious evidence in favor of intelligent design, the fact that the fish <laughs> have both this locomotive <laughs> mode and the electric field sensory mechanism? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> or do we have an evolutionary understanding of which came first? We. It's uh, a good question. I... I don't know if we know from the fossil record which came first. I suspect because um, undulatory swimming is actually not that uncommon. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that might have come okay. first. But and and there, in fact, there are these non-electric fish like Xenomestis uh, nigri, uh, which has a ribbon fin and they use passive electrosense, but don't actively generate it. But again, passive electrosense is a super short range sense. And so having a ribbon fin kind of goes with that. So it may not be active electrosense dependent, but it might have co-evolved with either active or passive, probably passive first. I think that's the ancestral condition. Okay. Okay. So you worked on the locomotion aspect of the electric fish as a postdoc here at Caltech. And then, uh, and that does sound a little bit more engineering to me, yeah. right? Like how yeah, things yeah. move in weird circumstances. Right, right, right. And so what, what I was doing with Joel was trying to figure out what roboticists call the small time reachable set of the animal, which is what do human given, beings call that? which is essentially, um, where you can get to given any feasible control input. So for a car, you know, you can go forward and backward initially and with some turning of your wheels, you can kind of get an hourglass shape and then you can do parallel parking and such. But you can see how that shape evolves in your mind's eye as you get more time from kind of an hourglass shape to more something like a a circle. And so I was curious what this would be for electric fish uh, since this is actually something that was actively being worked on by some um, kind of geometric um, uh, differential geometry people who are interested in the problem. Um, so some mathematicians pushing some mathematicians, around vector fields. Exactly, exactly. Interested in these fish. Yeah. Uh, well, they were originally doing it for Karangiform or the tail uh, flapping type swimmers. Okay. And I wanted to do it for the huh. ribbon fin swimmers. And that got me into, oh, wow, this is a, a motor volume, or as I now call it, or small-time reachable set, that has this very interesting geometry at small-time scales that changes at larger time scales, and it has this very interesting relationship to the sensory sensorium of the, of the fish. Yeah. I, I just want to pause here because yeah. it is kind of amazing to me the relationship between motion, maybe maybe it's not that surprising when I put it in these words, the relationship between the motion of objects and organisms and differential geometry and higher yeah. mathematics. Yeah. I remember there was yeah. a vividly there there's this wonderful little book on differential geometry by Walter Burke, uh. where he does the he gives an explanation for why people are find it difficult to get an intuitive grasp of parallel parking. Uh-huh. And he says it's because it involves the non-commutation of vector fields. Uh, yeah, Lee brackets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because you have the operation of moving forward or backward. Yeah. You have the operation of turning your wheels right or left, and they yeah. don't commute. It really right. matters which yeah. you do first. Yeah. And if you understand that perfectly well, it helps you parallel park. Exactly. And yes. so I, I can see why if you had different modes of moving, the differential geometers would become interested in Yeah. That. Yeah. And so that got you interested in 
differential geometry? Or It got me very interested in differential geometry, although I, I didn't pursue it too far. At, at about that time, I got this, uh, multiple people emailed me this uh, sort of uh, job um, that was opening up at Northwestern that was looking for a, a neurobiologist also trained in engineering. And I see. You know, so, so I, I cut my I cut my my postdoc about a year short, just as I was getting into the more arcane and interesting aspects of the differential geometry approach to these animals. Um, so, so, but it did get me interested in how to understand the relationship between sensory spaces, the sensoria of the animal, and their locomotion ability which has led to many interesting avenues subsequently. Right. So once you're at Northwestern, you're still studying the electrical fish. Yeah. But you become, I mean, it sounds like from the story that you had some initial interest in uh, thinking, you know, how the nervous system was working. Exactly. And then you became yeah. interested in the sort of more mechanical exactly, yes. locomotive aspects. Yeah. And yeah. then now you're a faculty member, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. And so you start thinking yeah. more about thinking and the nervous right. system. Yeah. Yeah. And so the way that went was... Roughly speaking, I so the 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 last bit of my postdoc was this paper characterizing exactly how these sensory and motor volumes coordinate over different time scales, and uh, at the end of uh, at the end of this work, I decided it would be fun to look at how visually guided animals uh, underwater um, how they how they coordinated their sensory spaces with their locomotor spaces. So in particular... So sorry, you you, so of, you'd figured out some relationship between this very special weird thing, this yeah. beastie, the electrical yeah, fish, yeah, yeah. That, can, that can sense a certain distance yeah. around it using electric fields, yeah. and you related it to this weird locomotive thing it has. Precisely. So you want to know, okay, what about the non-weird stuff? Yeah, <laughs> what yeah. is that relationship? Well, right. And so just uh, you know, to quickly summarize, the electric fish's uh, sensory volume looks like a cylinder around their body. Okay, and their small time reachable set or their motor volume is essentially a cylinder as well. And so how they get that cylinder out of their actuator is a really interesting problem, which we solve, but I won't go into the details. But then the question is for an animal that looks forward, and so now imagine in your mind's eye sort of a pie-shaped wedge of space in front of them, and then they have a tail-flapping system that only pushes them forward into that space, into that right. wedge of space. And they can yaw or turn left and right, roughly proportional, you know, somewhat related to their the 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 angle of that pie, you know, so pie slice. And so I was interested in characterizing how those two things coordinated in a visually guided animal. And so we did the calculations and some estimates, and it turned out that there's I, I expected, I guess, to see something. You know, we 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 walk around with this giant sensory volume ourselves, visual sensory volume. And my intuition was that uh, that visually guided fish underwater would have this giant pie wedge thing that they would be moving around looking for their prey. And it turned out to be really pathetically small and so small that I thought there were there was an error in the calculation. Sorry, which one was small? The, the sensorium? The, pie, the, the length of the pie. The, so how far which out? Which pie? The, the sensorium the, pie or the yeah, locomotion pie? The sensorium pie. Okay. So these uh, visually guided fish hunting for small bugs don't see them very far ahead. And it was so, such a small distance ahead. I thought there was a problem with the calculations. So but they eventually, can move very quickly. They yes, can get far, but yes, they can't see far. Correct. And I thought, oh, this can't be right because, in fact, what matters for, for all of these animals is not the, the static 
uh, uh, volume, but the sweat volume through sure. time. So as you, you know, because they're searching for empty space or relatively empty space for or food for live prey. And it turns out the sweat volume for the electric fish was almost identical to this uh, pie wedge-shaped sweat volume that the that the, uh, the the visually guided fish had. The shape was different, but the volume shape was, was the different. Same. The volume was almost the same. Okay, now electric fish have to pay for every joule of the energy that they're investing in electric field, whereas visually guided f- fish are parasitizing the sun's energy. So there's a difference there in the bioenergetics, but yeah. nonetheless, so it can't be a coincidence that these two very different organisms using two very different mechanisms have evolved the same sensory volume. Uh, it, it, it's, it was bizarrely similar in size uh, to me. But so eventually I nailed down that, uh, that it's simply due to the attenuation length of light and water. So it turns out that water is a terrible medium for, <laughs> for seeing with light. Eyeballs, and I yeah. just didn't, you know, I guess people who do scuba diving and, and, and work in submarines can tell you this uh, from their experience that, that suddenly things appear out of nowhere. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't have that, that uh, experience. But so, so the numbers show it really clearly and you lose uh, a huge amount of information on the order of meters. And that's imperfectly like laboratory clear water. It's not a function of turbidity. Right. If you add any particles in the water, then your range really goes down to nothing. Uh, so that led me to, I was at that time getting interested in what happened to vertebrates at the water land transition in the upper Devonian. Why did fish evolve limbs and all the other things they needed to evolve to come up on the land? Yeah. You know, what, what was the basis of that? Um, and it occurred to me that vision must have changed greatly after the waterland transition because suddenly you're going from a medium which is like a huge thick blanket on your sensorium to essentially infinity. Like you can see a distance further than is in most cases behaviorally useful. Well, we can uh, see the moon, right? It's you not can that see hard. the moon. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and so and you're not going to hunt for prey on the moon. So, <laughs> right. So this, why is what are you going to so, do with so, that? So, so, well, so what I was curious about was the eyes of the uh, ancestral uh, aquatic vertebrates were pretty small, and uh, I expected that they got as big as would be useful in this highly attenuating medium and you can calculate it out and we've done that and they are about as big as they should be the eyes of a fish yeah because getting them bigger essentially your visual range is proportional to your eye size but are the eyes of a whale really big i don't know the size of the eyes of a whale they usually use their echolocation systems for range okay because the attenuation length of uh, sound. sound in water is similar to the attenuation length of light in air. Okay. And so whales so. and dolphins are a really interesting example of vertebrates that got used to giant visual sensoria doing the one thing that you could do in water to regain that you kind produce, of range, oh, which yeah. is use the high-frequency uh, sound production system that, that land animals gener- evolved and do it for imaging. So uh, since with, I know nothing sound. about this, are there underwater animals that use echolocation that are not former land animals not to my knowledge there, okay. there may be like one or two species of these teleos that use clicks i'm fuzzy on remembering the species but i think that there might be a couple of examples now teleos are very recently evolved animals okay. uh, 
but um, there, so there might be that case. But but anyway, the ancestors the, of dolphins and, and whales got you know used to this luxurious, yes. broad sensorium, yeah, yeah. seeing the whole world, yeah. and they somehow cleverly figured out how to reproduce it. Underwater. Exactly. Yeah. And so now you asked me a long time ago about how does this connect to thinking, and um, I'm very interested in a relationship between how far away you can sense objects and how you modulate your behavior. So mm -hmm. the intuition there is uh, just think of yourself driving rapidly, too rapidly down a foggy road and you see something suddenly. You don't have a lot of executive planning that's going to go into deciding what to do next. You're going to swerve, you're going to brake, right. but in any case, you're going to do something simple. And so my thought was that it was be central to the evolution of more complex cognition to be able to sense things far enough out where it makes sense to actually have a plan. And the whole reason I was driven to sort of do a whole bunch of analysis of what happened to vision once we got onto land was an interest in why it is that vertebrate brains got a lot more complex, substantially more complex once we came up on land. So the idea is that underwater, you, you might imagine from our, you know, uh, very parochial air land-based point of view that thinking ahead of time is just a very useful skill to have. Yeah. But it also has costs. Yes. Right. You know, energy and, and yes. volume in our brains and so forth. Yeah. And you're saying that for a fish, it just doesn't help. There's yeah. just no point well, to planning it, ahead too much. You, 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 you can do it and they do do it to some extent. It's just that. It's much, much more useful once you come up on land. And energetically, I mean, it's a gift. Like as soon as you bend that cornea that was inappropriate after you came out of the water, you need to bend it a little bit for the different refractive index. But as soon as you fix that, which can be done very rapidly, evolutionarily speaking, you now can see hundreds of body lengths right. away. And suddenly you go from an animal which was trapped in kind of a reactive bub bubble, sort of always driving in the fog, if you will, to an animal which may not have had the neural circuitry initially for anything other than reactive control, to an animal which, with the right mutations, might be able to stall the uh, issuing of motor commands to the motor system and, and movement towards a prey, to think about, you know, well, if I do option A, you know, the prey will run away, but if I do option B, the prey won't run away, so maybe I'll do option B. This episode of Mindscape is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, a lot of us spend our lives wishing that we had more time to do things. But the question is, time for exactly what? Even if your time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. And therapy can help you find out what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you've given any thought to starting therapy, think about giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and BetterHelp is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Mindscape today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Mindscape. But wait a minute. I mean, this is, there's a fraught set of words you're using here, right? It's not only... <laughs> 
planning ahead, it's also using some sort of imagination, Absolutely. some sort yes. of ability to simultaneously contemplate Correct. different hypothetical yes. scenarios in your head. Yes. And so you're saying that the thing that prodded evolution to develop that capability was climbing up onto the air. Correct. Onto yes. And so we now know the address of that system in the brain. It's the hippocampus in coordination with the frontal lobes that uh, you can actually now monitor animals thinking ahead, thinking about different paths when they are given a challenging situation where... By, by putting them in an fMRI machine well, or something? Well, actually, the, the, the studies I'm thinking of right now are ones on what's called vicarious trial and error in rodents. And, and those studies, such as out of Reddish's lab at the University of Minnesota, were done with um, electrodes in the brain. Okay. Uh, looking at place cell activity in the hippocampus. Place cells in the hippocampus essentially are activating, uh, activated according to where you are in space. And what they observed is in mazes where um, there was not a reliable sort of reward location where you'd switch it so that the animal had to sort of think about what to do next. Then at choice points, you can actually see the place cells racing down one arm of the maze or the other arm of the maze before they act. Wow. So they're pausing there, and they're thinking about different futures. And were these parts of the brain there in the fish and adapted? No. There, so, so there is a part of the, the dorsal pallium. So this is uh, an area of increasing interest to me because I'm certain I, I'm not one to say that suddenly we had it. Um, there had to be precursors, of right. course. And uh, fish have place cells or have a sense of home, I should say. They have a sense of where they are in space. They have spatial maps. They have cognitive maps in the brain. So certainly they have some of the primitive inf infrastructure for this. But to do planning, to do imagination, there's no evidence. We don't know of uh, fish being able to do this. And that part of the brain, the hippocampus and, of course, frontal uh, areas in mammals got much, much larger with right. land animals. I mean, I do know this work that at least claims from fMRI studies that the part of the brain that lights up when you ask someone in an fMRI machine to imagine a future circumstance is the same part, roughly speaking, as when you imagine ask them to conjure up a memory of a past yeah, circumstance. Yeah. So it seems to be yeah. a bit of uh, well, that, that's using sort of, existing circuitry for that kind of thing. Right. That that discussion comes up in, in sort of analyses of how our parochial thought about memory is not quite right. It's not like a Right. random access store it's more like a recipe which yeah. once you recreate the experiences in your sensory cortices you sort of regenerate the experience that's where that comes up but this is something a little bit different this is uh, there's this uh, the hippocampus is this very very special uh, multimodal structure that binds uh, information across different modalities and and does relationships really well and that is where this imagination at least is one core part of the imagination circuit. Well, that's always the problem, right? Like we use words that yeah, were yeah. invented hundreds of years yeah. ago, like imagination. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, they have different aspects going on in yeah. the brain. But exactly. so you can point this particular one and you think you can. So that there's a hypothesis yes. that it's related, that, that the use of this to do this hypothesizing and future planning is related to this transition from seedling. Pres precisely right. So we're, we're now... We did this analysis of what happened to vision uh, from after the emergence uh, from water to land. We did this. We had a hypothesis about what happened to the eyes. 
Turns out our initial hypothesis was wrong. We thought the eyes would blow up in size after we gave up on the land. And it was much more interesting because we saw a blow up in eye size about 10 million years before we came up on the land. In the fossil record. In the fossil record. And it turns out at the very same time, skull morphologies disclose that animals sort of had these flattened skull shapes with these orbits way on top of the, the, the skull table. And for they look all the world for, for like crocodiles. So right. what, what would they have been doing? Well, it turns out there's this huge bloom of invertebrate life on land at that point, 50 million years preceding the vertebrate water to land transition. So the bugs and the plants the were bugs, already up there. Exactly, yeah. So uh, what we can then say is, whereas in the past we always thought of, if you were to ask what's the most useful body part for getting uh, for bringing us up onto land, you would have said, well, limbs, and everybody thought about the limbs, and how did the digits evolve, and how did they separate from... Well, it turns out that the eye, the eye increase preceded that stuff. Like, the separation of digits and all that stuff was preceded by a big increase in eye size. So it looks like what might have happened is something more causally interesting, which is that eye size grew up and uh, sh showed all this bounty that made it worthwhile clambering up on the land for. And only after that point do you start to see things like rib cages and all these other things that you need to live on land with. Uh, and digits, separated digits, all that came after the increase in eye size. So some fish were lucky enough to realize that if they poked their eyes up above the water, they could see much further. Yeah, yeah. They got a tiny little yes. epsilon advantage. Yes. And, and therefore, their descendants yes. whose eyes were more capable. Well, we have a theory about that, too. There, there's, uh, the, there are these breathing holes that are now our eustachian tubes mm -hmm. uh, that were right behind the eyes. And we were going through a very low oxygen period. Uh, of the Earth's, in the Earth's history, in the Earth's history, right at that point, and so we think the animals were actually coming up for a breath of air. Oh, okay. And just coincidentally, they uh, realized, oh my goodness, a, yeah, oh my goodness, there's this <laughs> bounty of unexploited food, undefended yes. food, and we were so excited that we we actually started getting the fossil records of the insects at the time, and you can see evidence for chemical defense systems suddenly appearing in the fossil record about the time that the vertebrates came up on the land. Chemical defense systems. So from the little bugs. ozopores, millipedes have these chemical defense systems, which right. currently are active against yeah. vertebrate predators, and they just pop up in the. In so they the didn't fossil need record. defense before. Prior the to that, I guess millipedes didn't like eating other millipedes. I'm not really yeah, sure, okay. but all the other bugs that were there, it's apparently not a, you know, a system that was needed before that time. Okay, so the uh, the fish had this evolutionary advantage. Some of them figured this out. Yeah, yeah, and and there was this new pathway that opened up that there was yet another evolutionary advantage. Oh, I can plan for the future. Right. So so our thought is that, and, and now we're doing all these computational simulations, and, and uh, we, we're almost ready to submit a manuscript that basically shows that if you have a small range, small sensory range, and this is not exactly you know mind-blowing stuff. You would intuit it. But if you have a small range, planning is useless. <laughs> yep. If you have a bigger range, planning becomes progressively more useful. I know plenty Duh. of people who have a small right. range and are not very good at planning, <laughs> so that makes perfect sense. But so what What was fascinating is after we did those initial simulations, these were all in open world scenarios, so no clutter, is that we got to this plateau of survivability. So, so, so the, the, this is your simulation. Yeah, so simulation of a predator and prey. Yeah, so we have a predator and a prey. Yeah. 
and we're using um, Markov decision processes to model the sort of uh, the game between the, the predator and prey. And uh, the prey has a fixed sensory range, the predator has an infinite range. Anyway, we, we got to a certain point where we said, you know, this isn't very land-like, and we're getting survivability rates for our prey that are really quite low, and, you know, it seems like they ought to do a bit better. Why don't we try putting clutter in the space? Because that's what land gives you is lots of clutter, lots of geometry. It's not fun to play hide-and-seek in an empty room. Exactly. Yes. So we tried that and we saw a fascinating pattern, which was planning became much, much more useful, but only in a restricted range of clutter, which matches terrestrial, typical terrestrial ranges. Uh, So purely open space, not very much advantage for planning. Uh, Total clutter, where all you see is jungle and forest, also not very useful for planning. But there is a sweet spot, mid-level entropy, if you, if you actually calculate the entropy level of the, uh, the terrestrial space, of the clutter. Uh, at mid-level entropies, you get this beautiful increase in the advantage of planning. And that's because there's some much more complex structure there in the space of possibilities. Exactly. So now, so, so now what we see is that every time the prey moves the value of that move and the location of that move is highly contingent on the predator's right. location. Because if there's an obstacle in front of it, it's got one value. And if there's open territory where the predator can just lunge, then it's got a totally different value. And so you, this, this diversity of values that ap- appear uh, once you have clutter is really what is exploited by planning. Do we and have any idea whether or not the first fish to come up onto land did so in moderately cluttered environments? Well, so there's lots of good data now on uh, that that forest systems were were going right. at that time. Uh, so it's plausible um, anyway. Yeah. It's plausible, yes. Okay, for sure. So it, that I think that that's a convincing case that once you're on land in the right circumstances, planning in some vague sense is useful. Um, is it obvious that evolution had the wherewithal to take advantage of this new opportunity? Well, that's so it's clearly the case that it did. Right. Uh, <laughs> so we well, do. It, you know, and right. so do mammals, many other mammals. And so do uh, very strong behavioral evidence that many birds as well. The neurophysiology is lagging in, in that group of animals. But uh, so it's there. There's no question of it. We do plan. Um, we do imagine. We, we do. We do imagine futures. Some of us better than others. But uh, yes. Exactly. And so, part of this is well, what's the archaeology of that? You know, how did it occur? Why did it occur? And I'm interested in that question from multiple angles. One is that I'd like to know why are we so bad at planning? Well, there's there's tight spatial and temporal limits to our ability to plan. It seems very very constrained, and escaping those constraints might be incredibly useful or, or transcending them might be incredibly useful in contexts such as looming threats that are transgenerational, like climate change or, you know, possibly AI might be another. Uh, but in any case, threats where uh, action has to be regulated, behavior has to be regulated across time scales that are much longer than what we are natively comfortable with our planning systems. I mean, would you go so far as to relate this emergence of the imagination, if you want to be slightly more yeah. sensationalist yeah, yeah, about yeah. it, no, to, it's perf- perfect word for to it. consciousness? Yeah, so I, I think that there's, so for from my standpoint, there's uh, 
that's the most productive way of thinking of consciousness currently. So what uh, is the, that, in terms of? The, in terms of imagination. So the first animal that had to examine its mental furniture in order to derive a useful behavioral program, uh, the first animal that had to imagine. So wait, so the, you're, you're linking there. We, we were previously talked about planning in terms of, you know, I could hide under the tree or I could climb on the rock, et cetera. Correct. Yes. But now there's a bit of self-awareness. Well, right. Well, so, but, but is that a necessary part, you're I, saying? I, well, it seems kind of ineluctably connected in that um, it is in your brain that you are examining these futures. And you're part of the future. And you're part of that future. Right. So, of course, it's not everything want, everything that people want from the word consciousness. But I think... Scientifically speaking, what what is the most what at least for me what is crucial is having something that is actionable scientifically, right. and f- from that standpoint, the the idea that at least a core component here of what we mean by consciousness is this imag- space of imagination that opens up for purely adaptive, very easily you know uh, calculated. Now we can show in the simulations why it arises or why it would arise um, that it, it's a perfectly natural response to a, a challenge that is brought by the interaction of long-range sensing, visual sensing, with, uh, with this dynamic context where memory is not quite sufficient, where you need to take into account moment-by-moment positions of your threats and act accordingly uh, so having that ecological scenario drives animals to evolve the system where they examine the contents of their own thoughts. And is this, I mean, I think that if we conjured up your former classmate, David Chalmers here, yes. he would cast the hard problem of consciousness in terms of what it is like to feel something, you know, Correct. the, the yes. ineluctably first person subjective yes. experience. Right. Are you... Is that what you're addressing here, or are you sort of no, sliding I think this past is quite, that to this see is, something um, a bit more objectively right, measurable? Right, this is quite, quite, uh, this is not that uh, that aspect of consciousness. Okay, so you're, you're in the, still in the realm of what David would, would call the easy problem of consciousness, yes, which correct. everyone agrees is hard. Yes, <laughs> yes. Okay, very good. So, and in fact, I mean, as you know, and Chalmers probably spoke to uh, of this and well, has in many other contexts, at least uh, that there's an aspect of that which seems completely um, outside of the capability of science. Because if science is supposed to be intersubjective, then if this is something that has to be subjective, then it can't. So therefore, the ontology has to grow, etc., and so, uh, yeah, but that, that, that's way beyond what I'm talking about. I'm talking okay. about something very practical, which is the space of imagination where we would ourselves figure in that imagination. Yeah. And so that's the first moment at which ourselves sort of became a, uh, well, an item of thought. Right. Now, self-awareness is clearly an important aspect of anyone's definition of consciousness. Yeah. And so that's what you're, you're getting at. Yeah. And so I have to ask the obvious question I'm sure everyone mm. asks. What about the octopus? Yeah, so octopus the octopus never climbed up onto land, did it? So, so I finally, uh, I just recently wrote a proposal to to look at these guys. Um, so we should say uh, octopuses are really, really smart. Well, so that, <laughs> in that, some sense, so so yeah. so everybody who looks at them uh, carefully has told me, you know, don't don't go so fast with that because you know, of course, you hear 
things about them looking at people opening jars and then going and doing the same. But I've heard from the same people who have done a lot of work on them that, you know, they're able to do it once and then they can't ever do it again. They don't remember how to do it. Well, or the, that or it was actually they, they got lucky or something like this. So I'm not I'm not denying that it looks like they you do. Octopus? <laughs> are you prejudiced against octopuses? They're they're such a thorn <laughs> in my side, uh, as soft as they are. Um, but um, no, I think I think there's something very interesting going on there. And and here's here's a couple of thoughts. One, octopus are this, you know, they're they're nudibranch mollusks, meaning they're unshelled, meaning they're unarmored. Yeah. And yet they're this delicious protein that can't swim very fast. <laughs> and they're hunted by the animals with the greatest sensory range in the water, which are dolphins and whales, which have turned their sound production systems into these amazing long-range sonar systems. So they have had to survive by their wits. And furthermore, they're hunted by, I just learned from Roger Hanlon, who's done a lot of work on them, that they're, uh, uh, they're, they're pre- preyed on by diving birds, who are also extremely intelligent animals and can right. see very long distances from above and they typically hang out in shallow areas and these birds dive and hunt them so it's and hard out here for an octopus is what so it's saying. hard really hard living uh as an octopus because they don't have great escape mechanisms they're great food uh so possibly and this seems terribly ad hoc so i i immediately grant that this this may just be a completely different way to evolve cognition than what the land vertebrates have done uh, but it is interesting that uh, that they are preyed upon by some of the smartest vertebrates. And it is interesting that they have these tremendous eyes, although I would argue because vision is so useless for the most part, uh, at least as a long-range sense in water, uh, that vision is giving them things like acuity for manipulation and, and that the, sort of thing. They're not very good at... Um well, so not that I shouldn't say they're not very good at, but the design of the octopus brain, as it were, is utterly different, right? It's totally brain. different, yeah. It's like spread out all throughout. But the that's body. not necessarily, you know, so birds also have a very, very different design for their brain, but they also seem to have something like a hippocampus like structure. And there's a part of the octopus brain that people have identified as being possibly hippocampal okay. in nature. So it, one thing that seems to be the case is that uh, nature is very good at evolving the correct solution uh, uh, regardless of the starting point. (laughs) So if you need a hippocampal-like structure, then if you started off as invertebrate stock, you'll come up with it um, if that's what you need. Okay, and so so let's get back to did the octopus got that out of the way? <laughs> octopus lovers out there, I I'm get glad it. that was a totally satisfying answer. I mean, I know that there <laughs> look there are people I know who are very smart, ethical people who won't eat octopus, you know, because mm-hmm. it has a certain level of intelligence. I think these are very good questions, and I'm not dogmatic in any direction about yeah. them. I have yeah. no idea what the right thing to think is. So I'm very yeah, curious. I'm about hoping to find out. Good, good. Uh, we'll have you back when, when you find out. That'll be important. <laughs> but okay, so back to the vertebrates. Yes, where we live. Yes. Um, so you have this hypothesis and. The, the the hypothesis about the relationship between imagination and climbing up onto land. So there's some evidence in the fossil record that the evolution of eyes did what you might expect it to do exactly. under this scenario. Right. Uh, is there is there evidence one way or the other for the evolution of brains doing what you'd expect it to do? 
Well, that's tricky because they don't fossilize. Uh, and so what we can do is you can do things like look at commonality uh, between the structure that is hippocampal-like in birds and in mammals. And their last common ancestor lived about 50 million years after the water-to-land transition. Okay, so it's not great. Um, so, so there's a big argument. Was it parallel evolution? Was it convergent evolution? Um, but... Um, yeah, so it's it's really hard to know how far back uh, that goes from the fossil record. Okay, uh, I'm gonna take a time out. Yep, because the sun is going to come into my eyeballs. Don't <laughs> I will edit this out. Right, because when we can't get actual fossil records, the best we can do is look at the different things that are alive today and exactly. try to yeah. roughly map them. It's very yeah. hard. It's like it's hard because I'm very interested in the origin of life. And you can think about the simplest organisms that live now, and you might think, well, they're closer to what life like when it started, but they're still billions of years away. Well, not only that. So one of the places we can look is at the pallium, which is the structure that's thought to be the ancestral to, to hipp hippocampus dorsal pallium in particular, and part of that. Uh, and we can look at it in Telios fish, and I have uh, colleagues of mine who've done this and have found evidence for things like spatial maps there and so on and so forth. A tricky thing there is that our last common ancestor with those animals was hundreds of millions of years ago, and so they've been busy evolving yeah. You know, potentially novel structures, more complicated and unique in their own ways, right? So you have to be careful about comparisons of extant creatures to to get at, to reverse engineer or uh, back calculate what happened long time ago. So not to say it won't be eventually possible. There's increasingly uh, this realm of sort of recovering soft body structure by high uh, cat, essentially uh, scanning imaging. Uh, fossils that were really well preserved and people are starting to be able to see neural structures uh, that way and so maybe eventually we'll be able to tell more uh, hippocampus is pretty deep in there so at least for that structure i i i, I have to be a bit skeptical but yeah um your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. But nevertheless, we are going to fearlessly draw conclusions from this line of totally reasoning fearlessly. for human beings. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So there, and so there is the thought that if this story is right, whether or not it's right, there's the fact that our uh, much beloved and vaunted ability to plan and think and yes. be conscious yes. is reliant upon what's in our brains. Yes. Um, and if, if it did come from, like evolution does not have teleology. It doesn't aim toward the future. Right. It, it, it just responds to the moment. Yeah. And does that does this story of how we got here have lessons for where we are now? Yes. And I think the answer to that is yes. And so that's where the research is going right now is is clearly um, we have some capacity to plan for the future. Um, but it seems to be both spatially limited, as in we don't think about spaces very far away from us. I'm not thinking right now about 
a trail in Africa I might go on in a few hours. And we don't think about things a very far away in time either. You know, we might stretch ourselves to think about our retirement, but not very <laughs> we're not often. Not even very good at that. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're pretty bad at that. <clears throat> and then, what are we going to do about problems that are, you know, multi generational, such as climate change, right? And so, I'm very interested in what the biological mechanisms are for the setting the length of our planning horizon. So, and and there's some very interesting work going on right now on that, and and I'm hoping to contribute to that. I recently got a an award from the NSF to look at this in um, mice with with Dan Dombach at Northwestern, where we're going to essentially um, study planning in rodents and giving them a whole bunch of challenging environments, including predator-prey contacts, and uh, start to look at what sets the time base of the horizon. So, you know, is it can we extend it by to today, to days, or to weeks, or to, to months, or is it something that Anything beyond a few minutes is purely through cultural technology, such well, as. Okay, so the idea is that you know the fish uh, naturally, from evolution, plans seconds in advance. Yeah, and once you climb onto land, now at minutes, least minutes, at least makes minutes, sense. like the, more the time that it takes. Yeah, between when you see possibly the lion tens and to minutes. Right. Okay, yeah. but clearly, human beings can do a little bit better. Yes, than that. I mean maybe clearly. dogs and cats can't. Now that I'm thinking yes. about it, I'm not even clear that my cats can do seconds in advance right but um we well, how can we do so i mean maybe the the first question is why can we even do that well right i think that that we can do better than that is interesting and the way in which we can do it as in its um i'll talk i'll call it effective valence like how much we care about the things we think about far in the future or far in time i think it's very telling and uh, from that perspective, uh, there's, uh, Peter Singh has this great analogy of, uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard it, Singer's Pond, this, yep. this thought experiment of you're driving up, uh, you've just bought a $5,000 suit, you're driving uh, by a pond, you see a struggling child in the pond, what do you do? Well, of course, you get out of your car and you run into the water, destroy your, your suit. Well, his question is, why don't you send the $5,000 to save a child whose life would clearly be saved yeah. by that $5,000 who lives in Africa. And my answer to that would be, well, your you have a very carefully titrated system between your care system, your, your planning horizon, and it all sort of meshes, but it meshes in very in a very local way. And that makes sense in terms of evolution. Why Precisely. And so getting beyond that, I think, is a hard bargain, uh, at least in terms of getting it natively with circuitry, so we can think about cultural technology to do it. But it'd be nice to identify at least what's constraining us uh, in terms of biological mechanisms. So if we wanted to in the future, or in the scientific uh, sci-fi future, to be able to go in with electrodes or some sort of neuroprosthetic, which would extend our planning horizon, that we could do so. Right now, we don't know enough about it to know how we do it. Are there even other animal species that do manifestly plan weeks in advance? It depends on so so I mean, there, I guess there, are there are animals that, that cache, yeah. etc. So it depends hibernate. on um, so so some of this can be sort of uh, assimilated to instinctual behaviors that are genetically hard programmed, right. and so it's clear that the animal has no explicit representation of this occurring. And they're just, and if you interfere with the routines, it's very easy to throw them off and they just repeat, right? 
but uh, so so I think squirrels and birds and other mammals have uh, seem to represent planning at least on the order of uh, days, if not weeks, for caching purposes. Um, Beyond that, I think it gets really fuzzy because of this issue of could it be just genetically hardwired? Right. But doesn't – so for humans, doesn't it make sense to think – and maybe this is just too simplistic, but I, I have this idea that you know, there was a phase transition when uh-huh. we became you know, the, the ability to express ourselves abstractly and in language and yeah. communally yeah. Uh, that gave us away – maybe this is what you mean by the cultural artifacts. But yes. I, I, even just individually, I think that this gives us an ability to conceptualize the future that, that isn't just hardwired. Absolutely. It does. And my – but my suspicion is that the, uh, that the gap between – that kind of rationality and our this sort of local care system where where our native sort of planning horizons mesh with care, where motivation also has a seat, is kind of the thing that we need to really crack in order to motivate ourselves to regulate behavior to affect time scales far outside of our natural range. Right. So in other words, you know, so a looming existential threat that might be multi-generational in scope. How do you motivate yourself now to do X, Y, Z? Yeah. Right? And uh, obviously, we could have something like the uh, climate change panels that are telling us we need to do this now. And governments, be if they're responsible, will do that and impose things like carbon taxes, et cetera. But on a, on a personal motivational level, um, you know, we, 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 I guess – that's that's where that gap can start to to really affect us between the natural sort of care system and the cognitive system that a bunch of people discussing this can say look we need to now reduce our carbon footprint by right. this amount or else right I do think that there is this maybe a little parenthetical and off track but that's okay that's why we're here um, there's a question of how much you should care about things in the future or things right. far away, right? Exactly. I had Tyler yes. Cowen on the podcast, and he I, I called him. He wasn't happy that I called him this, but I called him the <laughs> temporal version of Peter Singer. Yes, I because I he to was that. you know advocating that we have essentially a zero discount yes. rate for caring about the future. Right. Now, he had certain yes. policy recommendations that followed from that that you can disagree with, but it's yeah. an interesting philosophy question: Should we care about people far away and people in the future just as much as Right. Our near neighbors and our current selves. Right. So there's the normative question yeah. of how ought we discount the future. And then there is the empirical. And the empirically, we are hyperbolic discounters. So we don't, essentially. So explain <laughs> what that means. Well, so, so the value of a future harm or benefit rapidly declines with distance from the now. Right. And the function that describes that decline is hyperbolic. One over uh, X. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so uh, Cowan and others, there's there's others who are have discussed this in the literature, think that this discount rate is inimical to our future survival, and I think that's correct. If you correct. don't care that much about people far away, then then you act the way the we moment. are now, yes. which is living for the moment, <laughs> and our future generations and possibly the next generation be damned, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's deeply problematic um uh, and one could ask is 
humanity worth surviving, that's uh, another level up. But if you care about humanity... Uh, we can grant that for the purposes of this conversation. <laughs> okay. Humanity or its descendants would I be mean, a good thing to have around. The pro-octopus person would say... I know, exactly. You know, humanity would be damned. Like, I, look, I've met people who think that it's better not to have humanity around yes. in, in all seriousness. But yes. okay, I'm not yes. going to invite them onto the podcast. <laughs> Some bridges I'm not going to cross. But okay, yes. But I, I just think that we, I'm just sort of putting this out there. Maybe I've said it before in the podcast. I, I, I do think that I'm sympathetic to the idea that we should care more yes. than we empirically do yes. about people far away and people in the future. Yes. I am, but I'm not sympathetic to the idea that we should care about everyone equally. Right. No matter where they are, or when they are. I think that mm. it's sort of mathematically ill-defined Yes, to do that sure. and you know i think that there is a there's a practicality issue you know yeah, there like, is i don't have any five thousand dollar suits but right. uh i certainly am not giving away all of my worldly goods in the way that would best benefit mankind yeah. and i think that you know it's kind of impractical to imagine people doing that there yeah. is something to be said for balancing being good to the world and being good to yourself uh, i i fully agree and and in fact um I'm going to forget the name of the philosopher, he's Canadian, uh, has written this paper on the paradoxes that arise from zero discounting. Hmm. And there are many. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not really it's, practical. It's but, not yeah. practical um, in many of the same ways that Peter Singer's <laughs> approach. So being the temporal version has inherits, it seems, uh, some of the same paradoxes that uh, yeah. The spatial version uh, that Peter Singer um, pushes, but uh, I get it as there's, as limiting concepts, no, you know, reminding us how far away we are from that ideal. It's very useful to yeah, talk about. These yeah, things. I mean, I think if we even went one tenth of the way, yeah. we would do much, much better. than Okay, we are. so how can we get people to better? I mean, this is the practical implication yeah. of what you're doing. You so, want to get people to be better at taking the future seriously. Exactly. So. Um, my initial thought was maybe if I could really quickly figure out what was going on in the brain to support the horizon we have, I could just invent a prosthetic that everybody would put on and suddenly they'd be like taking their recycling out. Or and, a pill. You know, yeah. or a pill. Um, I've subsequently decided that neuroscience proceeds too slowly. Uh, <laughs> the world will be a thousand that, degrees. That was that my uh, naive, uh, uh, optimistic self uh, 10 years ago. And, and now I'm uh, now, now, uh, you know, the leading climate people say we have a decade to two right. decades to really do something or else it's catas catastrophe. Right. I believe that's correct. So um, I've been uh, pursuing uh, cultural technology to try to uh, address the problem. And it was inspired by uh, a book called uh, uh, The Myth of the Rational Voter yeah. uh, by it's Kaplan. By Kaplan right. And uh, in that book, he talks about uh, the concept of rational irrationality. Mm -hmm. The concept of irrational rationality is that if the belief of if, if false belief, the cost of false belief is low, then you're going to have irrationality. So it's sort of an economist's take on epistemology. Yep. Low cost, high irrationality. Um, and so that got me thinking, well, how can we make something that is outside of our perceptual bound, outside of our sensory envelope? Uh, that we really ought to care about. How can we make it real? How can we give uh, get what is uh, sometimes referred to as skin in the game yeah. for something like that? And uh, so myself and a couple collaborators, Moran Surf at Northwestern, have been pursuing um, 
a study, which we just completed, uh, a little over 150 people participated, half of them were climate denialists and half of them were believers in climate change, where we had them play a climate prediction market that we created. So there are bets over a period of 30 days on things like, will California have more wildfires in the coming month than they did a year ago at the same time, and a whole bunch of things like that. And people got $20 of money to play this market. And, um, you know, if they do really well, they could potentially earn a decent amount from the study. And so uh, we just finished it actually weeks ago. We haven't, we've collected, we've got all the data sewn up and we're, can't, I can't wait to get back to, to analyze it. I'm, there's a number of things I'm excited about. One is that I do think that, um, you know, there's this issue of, well, how much in the next 30 days can you say is actually due to climate change and so on and sure. so forth. That's, nice. however, That's why you have many questions, right? There, there, however, there are other things that lead me to think that this could be successful regardless of whether or not that's a problem. For example, um, as a result of um, this uh, sports betting, there's been a lot of research on what does what effect does sport betting have on people's behavior? Oh, yeah. And um, the data is clear. It more than triples participation now causality there is unclear right so if you're a sports buff then perhaps you're going to watch you're going to both bet and watch three times more nfl games which is what the data show but there seems to be a huge engagement effect once you bet money on something happening on an outcome you get engaged and we just like people to get engaged with climate knowledge which climate information so one of the questions we asked in our survey pre and post study survey is how many climate related stories did you attend to in your media, uh, you know, scape um, before and after the study? So we'd like to see whether there's an engagement effect, which mm-hmm. could be quite different from, you know, whether or not you get skin in the game effects. Um, so there is, I, I recently came across a study that was not that, but similar. And I actually found it on another podcast. Barry oh, Lamb yeah? has a hi-fi podcast, high P-H-I for okay. philosophy. Uh-huh. And uh, so he quotes this study, I think it's by Bullock, but I'll get, I'll get the reference and I'll put it on the website. It was, you know, there's this very well-known difference in beliefs about certain factual things between uh-huh. Democrats and Republicans or uh-huh. conservatives and liberals. Like, uh-huh. did the budget deficit go up or down during the Clinton presidency, hmm. right? It's a fact. Everyone knows there, there's a number. What do you think the number is? And there's a gap. And they said, okay, as they give the survey to some people and they they see what the gap is and then they give the survey to another bunch of people and they say we'll give you a dollar if you get the answer right (laughs) yes and suddenly the gap goes away yes basically so people are much better there's an expressive component to giving opinions about things like that even when they're facts and when you actually put the skin in the game yeah charging them a dollar then they're more likely to get it right you're probably aware of this so hansen who came up uh, one of the people who came up with prediction market, Robin, Hansen, Robin yeah. Hansen at um, George Mason, um, has tons of tons of examples of this, yeah. where it seems to take a trivial amount of money right. to actually close that gap. So it's almost like it's unlinked from the monetary value. Just the fact that you have any actually causes a huge change in your uh, epistemology. Yeah, no, I'm so. familiar with this from playing poker because poker is the most boring game in the world if you're not playing for money. Because <laughs> yeah, people right. don't act rationally. Yeah. They're like, yeah, all yeah. right, let's do whatever. Yeah. And like play for a couple of pennies and like, oh, I want to win Well, that's penny. a fabulous metaphor for yeah. people's position on climate change. That's right. Yeah. So, okay, so I can see how putting a little bit of skin in the game makes people act a little bit more rationally. How do we implement that to save the planet? 
Well, so the idea would be if we could um, say uh, universalize such a market, suppose there's this tiny 1% tax, carbon tax, and it goes to people um, being able to play in this this carbon or on this prediction market. Yeah. It'd have a, a huge number of beneficial effects. One effect would be that um, you'd get wisdom of the crowd effects. So there's a whole bunch of things happening to the climate right now that a very, very small subset of which are being attended to by scientists. Things like, for example, ice roads in Alaska having to uh, close much earlier than normal. Uh, things like uh, my friend in Pasadena's garden is being overtaken by this invasive species that likes warmer climates. You know, the whole wine all, industry is changing dramatically. There, that, there's that. They're making champagne in Britain. There's that. So, so all of these, you can create these positions on the market, and now it becomes an instrument by which we can see what climate change effects are occurring, and it becomes a sort of a, a prosthetic, if you will, for understanding what changes are occurring over what time scale. And that the, the market might be a means by which we attune our behaviors to longer temporal sort of but concerns. But are you imagining essentially forcing people to play in this market or bribing them to do it? Well, I suppose um, I haven't thought that far in advance, but if one could universalize the market and have a small uh, amount of a carbon tax go yeah. into everybody's pocket, and they could either just leave it there as sort of direct profit, or they could play this market right. and possibly amplify it based on their knowledge, uh, then the people who would want to play the market will will do so and those who don't i mean it relies on the idea that in some sense we have the cognitive capacity to plan far in the future and get it right but there are sort of shortcuts that we often take that prevent us from doing precisely so. right that i i feel we need to bring it into we need to bring these very slowly looming phenomena be they climate change or a future ai we need to bring it into the planning range our native planning range Right. And a mechanism for that would be to change the costs. So yeah. to make it costly not to. Right. Right. Change the, inten the incentive structure. That would, yeah, change the incentive structure, but in a way that we can sort of get our arms around spatiotemporally speaking. Uh, and I feel like a prediction market would be one way. It's probably just one of many ways, just the first one that we thought was worth testing. Um, but there, there are other approaches. And the principle is basically get skin in the game, yeah. uh, as in your skin now during your life for something that might otherwise, you know, take very, very long, a very, very long time. Climate change out. is the obvious example of our failure to think on long horizons. But my favorite example is actually solar flares. I don't know uh, if you're very familiar with this idea. I've but I've heard you talk about this. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I had a lunch with a lawyer who was on some committee to look at this. Like, he's not a scientist or an engineer, but like he got the expert testimony. Yes. And the claim, which I'm still not sure... I haven't really dug into the evidence for it myself, but the claim was, look, solar flares happen all the time, but really big ones are rare. Uh -huh. We're not sure how rare because we have not been collecting data for solar flares for that long. Right. right? It is absolutely possible that on timescales of once per every thousand years, uh -huh. we get a solar flare that would be big enough to essentially wipe out the entire power grid of the Earth. Uh -huh. And millions and millions of people would die because yes. they'd be without power for months or something yes. like that, right? And it's not that costly compared to the 
you know, downside to harden the grid and, and save I it see. from this. I see. But no one is going to pay the money to do that when right. you say there's a one this, in a thousand right. chance per year that this could happen. Yes. yes. <laughs> we just can't do that calculation. We're not right. very good at it. Yeah. It needs to have happened at least once in the modern period. Yeah. So our, yeah. we're just no, nothing in evolution ever trains you to plan on time scales 10 times longer than a human lifetime for obvious reasons. Right. Right. I wonder if that's maybe that's a good planet of the apes. Um, movie in the future. I think that's I think that things like that are because you know scare people a little bit uh, is useful if it's a good scare like right. the China syndrome was, was kind of silly but <laughs> and day after tomorrow was kind of silly for different reasons but yeah. yes we can we can uh, apply art and culture yeah. Uh, yeah. to that yeah which reminds me we'll end the the podcast by because people need to know this you were the science advisor on a very well-known uh, culturally important <laughs> TV show <laughs> Caprica. Caprica. That's yeah, right. right. Which was the I'm not, I'm not sure. It, yes. Not sure if it falls into all of those categories. But yes, uh, that was that was a great experience uh, being able to go through every script and uh, be a part of be a part of that show. Do you think that there is value or how much value do you think there is in scientists uh, engaging in that kind of uh, engagement with popular culture? It's not outreach in the sense that, you know, you're not learning neuroscience from watching Caprica. Right. Right. But maybe by nudging the script in certain ways you're inspiring people what is your thought about that yeah i think that there's lots of ways in which it enriches um the these shows and and in particular um you know this this the script writers aren't you know necessarily well trained in science typically not um and so when they are thinking about uh how do i portray this ai breakthrough or or this roboticist they're going to take off things from the shelf which you know, are probably things that they saw in movies and and stereotypes that they have from pop culture, actually, and and don't track with what is a much more interesting and fine-grained sort of thing that's going on in reality. And so what we're able to do is sort of add some nuance there. And But also, I mean, there's... The the great thing about Caprica is it had lots of interesting philosophical aspects to it. You know, this whole sort of going into VR and the concept having... I remember talking with the show uh, writers for a long time about how do we have death in VR? Mm. And that was a really fascinating problem to to puzzle over and eventually um, decided on something like uh, a a game that you uh, got kicked out of once you died. Yeah. And it was, it was, a, video games it was a real it was a really important game because this is a, in, in the context of the show. It's the one game in which this person could see their daughter who died and now lives in this virtual reality. And so getting kicked out of the show really meant something very meaningful. Right. And did the influence flow the other way? Did working on Caprica in any way influence you to think deeply about the looming AI menace? <laughs> well, robot take over. You know, I, I think that. Um, Battlestar Galactica and Caprica did an amazing job of envisaging this 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 whole arc, right? And there's these beautiful moments of Battlestar, for example, where um, the Cylon, one of the Cylons, I think it was Boomer, says, "You know, I'm not sure humanity has a right to continue existing," and 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 just pushes it's on a little challenge of, for us. Right? It is a good little challenge, and and I feel like. The way they envisaged envisaged our sort of moral uh, uh, prospects with AI was a fascinating and, and deeply thought, thought 
thought-provoking one. So, yes. Well, we do hope that your work and uh, the work of others we've had on the podcast will help stave off the Cylons <laughs> from taking over <laughs> at some point. Malcolm McIver, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's great to be on the show. Thanks. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta SkyMiles business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business.